Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. The UN became the kitten that roared this week. Will the kitten grow to a full-blown lion? Yes, it will, but not until it is ready to join with the Islamic beast for the purpose of finishing Israel off completely. Stay tuned, I'll tell you exactly what this kitten roared about this week. But first, a review of the beasts of Revelation for clarity's sake. Last week I explained that the beasts of Revelation are separate entities. The beast whose home is the pit and who comes out of the pit to constantly accuse the brethren before Yahweh is Satan. His children are the first beast of Revelation, the second beast of Revelation, and the beast of Revelation 17. Three children of the beast whose home is the pit and from where he comes. The first beast of Revelation 13 and the beast of Revelation 17 are the United Nations and Shiite Islam, respectively. These will ally with each other against the second beast of Revelation 13, the Judeo-Christian beast, otherwise known as Secular Zionism, the State of Israel, partnered with the United States. This is the Judeo-Christian beast. This is not the rise of Yeshua's biblical Israel based on kingdom values, Yahweh's definitions of words, and a culture that is nothing like any of the nations of the earth. The Zionism of Israel and the U.S. is man-made, based on religious false doctrines that Yeshua warned us about. These false doctrines come from Jewish rabbis, Catholic priests, and Protestant denominations, all having their roots in Kabbalah, Persian, and Babylonian mysticism. Biblical Zion is coming, but the Zionism beast of Revelation 13, that Judeo-Christian beast, must rise and be fought by the United Nations and Islamic beasts allied with each other. The United Nations is now fighting against Israel and the U.S. with resolutions, votes, and actions. This week, the United Nations Human Rights Council released the list of the Israeli companies operating throughout the West Bank settlements. The Guardian reports that the U.S.-based TripAdvisor, Airbnb, and the British truck and digger maker, JCB, are on the list. Most of the 112 companies linked to settlements, which are regarded as illegal under international law, were Israeli. The list included 18 international firms, including the London-based travel agency Opodo and the Netherlands-based Booking.com. Here's the kitten part. The UN statement made clear the report was not part of a judicial process and the database will have no immediate legal implications for the companies. However, an official list published by the UN agency could lend energy to pro-Palestinian efforts to pressure governments and consumers to take action such as boycotts against businesses linked to the occupation. This kitten has no roar and no teeth. 
It only has the power of the beast by consent of the people who John saw coming up out of the sea. You know, it's difficult running a beast entity designed to usurp Yahweh's authority through twisting his word. It isn't the nations that are prophesied to be united and holding 196 countries together in unity is hard to do given how many of those nations want Israel completely destroyed which would destroy the beast's reputation as a peace entity. Satan's cover would be blown which is why it will take years for it to come to grips with the fact that if it wants to hold on to its power on the earth it will have to kill two of its children Israel and the U.S. In essence the United Nations beast will come to realize that it has to eat some of its own young. The UN has to uphold its persona of peace, so must make a show of trying to control Israel. Eventually, the United Nations will put together an army, join with Shiite Islam, and gather together in the Jezreel Valley for Armageddon. Right now, Yahweh is restraining this. The United Nations will continue to act on its own and so will the Persian Shiite beast. Until then, the United Nations will roar like a kitten and the world will continue to hold it in awe. The UN's Human Rights Council, a body composed of 47 states elected every three years, adopted the resolution in 2016 asking the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to produce the report. The move gave Palestinians hope that they won't be so quickly and easily pushed out of Israel. Palestinian officials immediately welcomed the publication. Hussam Zumlot, the head of the Palestinian mission to the UK, said on Twitter, A good day for peace and the international rules based on order, and a timely message for those who push us toward chaos and lawlessness. The Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, a pro-Palestinian group leading calls for the use of boycotts to pressure Israel, said the database was a very significant first concrete step by any UN entity towards holding to account Israeli and international corporations. Reuven Rivlin, the Israeli president, warned against threats of boycotts. We call on our friends around the world to speak out against this shameful initiative, he said. According to Haaretz, ministers from Netanyahu's Likud party, including Yariv Levine and Gilad Erdan, were less restrained. They jumped straight into the standard cliches, exploiting and cheapening the Holocaust by accusing the UN of anti-Semitism. The prize, however goes to President Reuven Rivlin, the very president who tries so hard to project a statesman-like, tolerant, balanced image, termed the database a blacklist, adding that this is a shameful initiative reminiscent of dark periods in our history. In other words, publishing an international database about businesses that operate in the settlements which is illegal according to international law and UN resolutions is just as bad in Rivlin's eyes as the Holocaust 
it should be pointed out that this list isn't even accompanied by any actual sanctions or boycotts, much less gas chambers. This is also the same president who just recently hosted an impressive phalanx of dozens of world leaders at a conference against anti-Semitism in Jerusalem where he urged them to protect democracy. Just as the international community was able to unite under World War II to promote a shared goal, he added, it must continue working together today on the basis of shared values. And let me interrupt here to say that common sense should tell everyone that a Jewish-only state cannot be also a democratic one. I have examined this inconsistency between the two ideologies in other Beast Watch News reports. But international law and international institutions evidently aren't democratic enough for Rivlin, or perhaps he's only selectively protective of democracy when it's convenient for him, according to this Haaretz article. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking to a local radio station, said he would fight this with all our strength, but came short of calling it anti-Semitism. The reaction in Israel across party lines speaks of a de facto annexation of the settlements from years ago. Haaretz reports the wall-to-wall support for West Bank settlements voiced in Israel on Wednesday in response to the UN list shows that the annexation everyone is talking about these days has actually happened de facto long ago. Without any dramatic Knesset votes or referendums, and without the need for any favors from the Trump administration, the entire Israeli establishment stood unambiguously on the side of the settlements. Anyone who still mistakenly thinks that Israel's war against BDS is aimed against boycotts of Israel as a whole including within the 1949 armistice lines, ought to sober up. Israel's intention, as evident from both its legislation and inactions, is unequivocally to protect the settlements, not Israel, against boycotts. The state isn't interested in the distinction between Israel's right to exist as a country and the dispute over the settlements. Rather, it seeks to blur the borders. This was once again made clear by the Israeli bureaucrats who mobilized on Wednesday to assail international law in the name of annexation. With an uncomfortable giggle, one briefer even recited those same accusations of anti-Semitism in his talking points. In the Israel of 2020, official state bodies use BDS and anti-Semitism as synonyms in their campaign to protect the settlement enterprise. As for President Donald Trump's peace plan, Haaretz continues, In recent weeks, following the release of the Trump administration's peace plan, there have been stormy campaigns on both the right and the left for or against officially annexing the settlements. But what happened on Wednesday proves that this is a sterile debate over mere symbolism. De facto annexation has already happened and continues to happen every day. It is only de jure annexation that's still being fought over. 
Israel has been treating the settlements as an inseparable part of the country for a long time already. De jure annexation won't drastically change anything of importance that isn't already happening on the ground. Israel has already annexed everything all by itself and doesn't need U.S. President Donald Trump and his ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. Official recognition is just icing on the cake. And now Israel is preparing to mobilize governors of the 50 U.S. states against the U.N. resolution. You need to know that I am neither for or against Israel and the U.S. or the United Nations and Islam personally. I realized a long time ago that my personal view must agree with Yahweh's view, which is that every nation is wrong. None of them, including House of Judah, Israel, and House of Israel, America, which is leading the westernized House of Israel nations, are in line with scriptures. These views reported in Beastwatch News come from the Hebraic perspective of prophecy and are based on Yahweh's kingdom and his commands and statutes, which every one of these entities violates. These circumstances must continue to escalate until the prophecies are fulfilled and Yeshua returns to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So my personal horse in this race is Yeshua's horse. Now let's look at the peace deal. Here is Isra Pundit to tell us how Trump's deal of the century is a two-step plan, not a two-state plan. Just two weeks after its release, the Trump administration's plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace has already been so widely discredited for its one-sidedness and its political deviousness that there is a risk of ignoring its most immediate threat, which is not to the Palestinians but to Jordan, according to this article from the New Yorker. In Israel, the plan, or vision, as the document unveiled at the White House calls it, has been received as an American warrant for the Israeli government to annex West Bank territory. This could precipitate a crisis in the Hashemite kingdom of Abdullah II, whose stability is critical to Israel's security and to that of America's regional allies, particularly in any effort to thwart Iranian forces in Syria, Iraq, and the Gulf. A one-sided annexation will risk a negative Jordanian reaction that could seriously undermine relations. Gilead Sher, who served as the Chief of Staff and Policy Coordinator to Israel's former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, said that annexation would poke King Abdullah in the eye, put the peace treaty at risk, or at least reduce it to a meager minimum. That's because Abdullah's problems do not end with a restive Palestinian population. The economy is in trouble. Almost 40% of Jordanians work either for the government or in education. Only about 10% work in manufacturing. The average annual income is less than $5,000. In recent years, growth has slowed to under 3%, while a government's debt burden has ballooned. 
In 2016, Abdullah imposed austerity measures, yet, owing to the bloated public sector, maintained in part to support local, loyal Bedouin tribes, there are many opportunities for officials to embezzle state funds. In the past two years, there have been large demonstrations against corruption, which forced Abdullah to replace his prime minister. Last spring saw sit-ins near the royal palace, denouncing austerity measures and demanding jobs, political reform, and even limits on the king's powers. Not only does the peace plan face problems in Jordan, but also in Israel, surprisingly. West Bank settlers want formal annexation to begin yesterday, but the Israeli and U.S. governments have said no until after the election. And we just found out, though, that annexation has been a done deal for a long time. The push for the stamp of approval is the only reason for what Haaretz called the sterile debate. Most Israelis favor the plan that requires Palestinians to recognize Israel as the Jewish state, drop the dream of millions of fourth-generation refugees flooding the country, accept a demilitarized state with shrunken borders, give Israel control over all Jerusalem, and accept annexation of the Jordan Valley and West Bank settlements. Even so, it turns out that this is a more complicated sell domestically than Bibi imagined. The West Bank settlers, an integral part of his Likud bloc, want annexation to begin immediately. In Washington, Netanyahu promised that it would. But on Sunday, U.S. Ambassador David Friedman made clear that things are on hold, at least until the March 2nd elections. The U.S. wants time to draw a clear map to allow the Palestinians to make a counteroffer and, not least, for Israel to create a functioning coalition government capable of signing the deal. The incensed settler leaders will not abandon Bibi, they have nowhere else to go, but they could become an opposition faction within the Likud bloc with the power to stymie a Palestinian state, even the most diminished. Israel National News asks, what is the Jordan option, and is it good for Israel? The subheading says, Trump's plan versus the Jordan option, which plan will be the best for us? Well, those are the wrong questions, albeit the typically selfish Jewish kind. The consideration Jews must make is not only what is best for them, but for everyone else as well. Remember, Yahweh said they're supposed to gather in all 12 tribes. This effort that they're making now is designed to gather only four of those 12 tribes. This Israel National News article is actually a podcast from a radio broadcast with Tamar Yona as the host and Ted Bellman of Israpundit as the guest. Yona reports that Trump's peace plan is being opposed by many here in the region and Bellman says there may be a better plan called the Jordan Option. I have reported for several months on the Jordan Option and even brought Bellman's reports forward regarding it. I believe neither Yona nor Bellman can see that Trump's peace plan is not really the one he wanted to offer.
the Jordan option is what he wanted to offer but Israel is in no way ready for the consequences of losing Jordan as a peace partner right now given the major uptick in the war between Israel and Iran in Syria the other situation that arose which has had unforeseen consequences by Trump is Iran's reaction after the assassination of General Soleimani Iran has not backed down after the U.S. show of force instead Iran is now keeping the U.S. busy in Iraq and Syria the U.S. presence is too sparse to be thinned out by moving troops into Israel to stop the war that will come upon implementation of the Jordan option thus Trump put forward a plan that isn't even a new plan according to foreignpolicy.com and he did it because he was running out of time moving forward into elections Israel's and his own Trump and his top aides pride themselves on thinking outside the box and boldly challenging conventional wisdom according to foreign policy but the Trump plan is actually as traditional as it gets in fact it bears striking resemblance to another plan published more than 40 years ago in 1979 the world Zionist organization released a plan titled master plan for the development of settlements in Judea and Samaria 1979 to 1983 written by Matadiahu Droble a former member of the Knesset for the Herut liberal bloc a precursor to today's Likud party and the head of the World Zionist Organization's Settlement Division, the body responsible for planning and building settlements. While Trump and Kushner like to present their work as groundbreaking, the groundwork for the Jordan Valley's annexation was in place decades ago. His plan was basically a detailed attempt to execute the then Agriculture Minister Ariel Sharon's plan for settlement expansion, a task that successive Israeli governments carried out with great zeal over the following four decades, placing 640,000 settlers in key areas throughout the West Bank. Trump's vision is actually Droble 2.0. The Sharon plan was presented in 1979 and the Jordan option plan was proposed in 1980. The Jews have been on a plan to rid Israel of all non-Jews for a very long time and they have given themselves a couple of different options. The difference between the Droble plan and the Jordan option is that the Jordan option makes Jordan the Palestinian state instead of making a Palestinian state within Israel's boundaries west of the Jordan River foreign policy continues comparing Trump's plan to the Jordan option Trump's and Droble's plans share a conviction that there should never be any true Palestinian sovereignty over the land Trump's plan that it necessarily entails the limitations of certain sovereign powers in the Palestinian areas in other words Trump like Droble 40 years ago insists on absolute Israeli control over land while outsourcing 
administration of the non-Jewish residents of that territory. Palestinian control over land has never been on the table. So let's look at this for a minute. Trump's plan does exactly what the Jordan option does with one important difference. Trump's plan offers what the United Nation wants to hear, two states within Israel, until such time as the U.S. and Israel believe they are ready for an internal Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian all-out war. This is designed to keep the international community off his back, that off of Trump's back, until such time as he can get control of the Middle East mess he's created. The only difference between the Trump's plan and the Jordan option is who will have sovereignty over the Palestinians. Israel doesn't want it. They want the Palestinians' supervision to be outsourced. The outsourcing of administration is double speak for we're going to make them Jordanians whether they want it or not. Oh, if Abdullah would just make this suggestion himself so the U.S. and Israel won't have to push it on him. Beyond the issue of territorial sovereignty, both plans agree on permanent Israeli control over the West Bank. As Trump and Kushner put it, the state of Israel will maintain overriding security responsibility for the state of Palestine, or in Drobley's words, there cannot be any shadow of a doubt about our intention to maintain perpetual control over the territory of Judea and Samaria. Israel will be in control of the territories militarily. They will have captured the Palestinians, as it were. Folks, this is nothing more than a siege of the Palestinians, and it is designed to make them want to leave Israel, not have to push them out with war, the Gog-Magog War. There is yet one difference between Drobles and Trump's plan. Drobles was honest enough to admit what he was doing. He was explicit that what his map described was not a Palestinian state, but the means to prevent one. Trump and Kushner support the exact same line of thinking, yet they call this collection of Bondistans a plan for two states. Abantistan is a territory set aside for a particular people. The term originated rather in Africa when territory was set aside for a Bantu homeland in South Africa. The plan ensures there will never be a Palestinian state in the West Bank, which has been the core principle underlying Israeli policy since 1967. What is new is the audacity of calling the leftover bits and pieces of land not taken up by settlements a state. All that Trump's plan does is swap out Drobles' talk of permanent control for the words state of Palestine. Now, back to Ted Bellman of Israpundent. He also asks the reason for Trump bringing forward this solution instead of the Jordan option. He says the Trump team knows this plan does not form a Palestinian state. 
So why did they table the vision? In his opinion, Trump wanted to present a new vision to replace the old one. Here's the expectation. During the next four years, they will advance their vision and negate the old vision. In other words, the plan is out there. Everyone, even the Jews, are up in arms about it. It is now getting to be seen worldwide as a bad plan, but this is exactly what Trump wants. He has created a loss leader. In marketing, a company offers not the best product it has, but one with enough less bells and whistles that it is easy to upsell the customer into what the company really wants to sell. Trump doesn't want, nor does he expect, this plan to be accepted. He does, however, see it as a way to offer the real plan, the Jordan option. I'm not the only one seeing this. Israel National News, Yonah Tamar, Ted Bellman, and others in Israel see this, but they have to elect a government that will follow through with the plan to accomplish the Jordan option over the next four years while Trump is still in office. Yes, I expect he will be reelected. Ten Bellman's dream is for Murad Zaran to replace King Abdullah. Well, I think Ted and Murad might get a big surprise when the time comes, but we shall see. Bellman's article continues, Let us imagine that Jordan changes its mind and agrees to become the Palestinian state in place of the one that fails to materialize pursuant to the deal of the century. This change of mind can come about either through the king having an epiphany or being replaced as a ruler by Dr. Murad Zaran, the leader of the Jordanian opposition. Were this to happen, all Palestines in both sides of the Jordan River would become full Jordanian citizens without restrictions. The two roads connecting this proposed statelet to Jordan would be completed facilitating transportation between Palestinians on both sides of the Jordan River. Jordan would take over the administration of areas A and B and Gaza in place of the PA and Hamas. Jordan would also fulfill the role of the UNRWA in providing education, welfare, and health care to all the current day refugees. By granting them citizenship, they would no longer be refugees. Rather than build the tunnel connecting Gaza to the rest of the statelet at a cost exceeding $15 billion, Jordan can invite all residents of Gaza to relocate in Jordan to receive these benefits. It is not too far-fetched to believe that the 1.7 million Arabs living in Gaza could be incentivized to relocate to Jordan, which is only 100 miles away, or to any other country prepared to accept them. The same goes for the Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria. It would be necessary for Israel to give up any parts of its territory. 
Israel would extend its law to all the lands west of the Jordan River, including Gaza, if and when the population is greatly reduced and the Arabs would become foreign residents in Israel with Jordanian citizenship. The $50 billion pledge to this vision could be provided to Jordan to enable it to become the home for all Palestinians and provide them with jobs, education, and health care. The caveat to this is that all Palestinians would be required to move to Jordan to receive their benefits. And this has been reported in Beast Watch News, quoting from other news sources. Instead of investing in industrial parks in Area C in Israel to benefit the Arabs, as proposed by Minister Bennett and Prime Minister Netanyahu, these zones should be created in Jordan, thereby incentivizing Arabs to emigrate to Jordan. This is a two-step solution instead of a two-state solution. The first step is to change the vision as above set out, according to Bellman, and the second step is to make Jordan Palestine. Now let's look at heavy fighting between the Turkish militias and the Syrian army. The Turks and Syrians are now fighting a wider war. Rebels shot down a Syrian military helicopter in northern Syria on Tuesday, killing its crew members in a fiery crash, while the government kept up its relentless bombing campaign on the opposition-held region of Idlib with an airstrike in which seven civilians died. The Syrian helicopter gunship was shot down by insurgents amid fighting near the village of Nerab as rebels, backed by Turkish artillery, tried to retake it after losing it last week. The flashpoint continues to be the province of Idlib, considered the final obstacle in the way of Bashar Assad's quest to regain total control of Syria. The violence in Idlib province came as government troops moved closer to capturing the last rebel-controlled section of a strategic highway linking southern and northern Syria, which would bring the road under the full control of President Bashar Assad's forces for the first time since 2012. With support from Russia and Iran, Syrian troops have been on the offensive for weeks in Idlib and parts of nearby Aleppo provinces, unleashing a humanitarian crisis with 700,000 people fleeing their homes and surging north toward the Turkish border. Nearly a quarter of the three million people in Idlib and nearby areas have fled. Terrified families piled onto trucks and other vehicles, clogging muddy rural roads in yet another harrowing exodus in the conflict, now in its ninth year. Associated Press video showed the helicopter spiraling from the sky and breaking up as fire poured from its fuselage just before it crashed. Two bodies could be seen on the ground. Six Turkish soldiers and a civilian working for the army were killed in a Syrian government shelling on Monday. Shortly afterward, Turkish forces attacked several Syrian military bases, killing 76 Syrian soldiers. 
the Syrian base has boxed in nine of the twelve Turkish outposts set up in the northwest province of Idlib as both armies prepare for a final showdown over the last Syrian province still holding out against the, the Assad regime. Ankara beefed up its Idlib outposts in the eastern sector of the province after Syrian shelling killed eight Turkish troops and the Syrian army reached the southern outskirts of Idlib city. This is perhaps the most violent confrontation between Turkish and Syrian forces in recent times and it may expand unless Russia and Turkey manage to enforce their January 12th agreement and establish a ceasefire. An estimated 50 to 70,000 rebel fighters are concentrated in the region, having come from all across Syria. Most of them belong to radical Islamist groups such as the Sham Liberation Army, an offshoot of the Nusra Front, and include fighters from foreign countries, mainly from the Caucasus. None of the sides involved in the war have a feasible solution for how to get rid of the armed groups. Turkey, which thought that it could block the Syrian assault on the rebel fighters and stop the flow of refugees, looks as if it has now lost control over its diplomatic and military moves. In an unprecedented statement, at least since relations between the two countries were repaired in 2016, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that Russia claims it is fighting terrorists. Who are these terrorists? They are civilians trying to protect their homes, he said. Erdogan then accused Russia of not abiding by the agreements of Astana and Sochi in which it made a commitment to refrain from a military offensive in Idlib. Erdogan said that Turkey had waited and from now on would act independently. He went even farther, posing an ultimatum to Russia. If we are lo loyal partners with Russia on this day, they have to put forth their stance. Our wish is that Russia immediately makes the necessary warnings to the regime which it sees as a friend. The problem is, however, that the country with no remaining options in Idlib is Turkey. It understands that a military campaign against Syrian forces could put it on a collision course with Russia, which has become its only superpower ally after the rift with the U.S. Turkey has no real influence on militia fighters and lacks a solution for the hundreds of thousands of refugees that may cross its border. It has become trapped in a policy it brought onto itself, and it's doubtful whether Erdogan's warnings will stop the military campaign Damascus and Moscow have launched in Idlib. Turkey's latest move has been to threaten Bashar al-Assad with more airstrikes on Syrian government forces anywhere it sees them in northern Syria if another Turkish soldier is hurt, Erdogan said, and Turkey could use its formidable air power, he added. Meanwhile, the U.S.-led coalition fighting the Islamic State said its troops opened fire on Wednesday at a checkpoint in northeast Syria where they came under small arms fire. In a statement, the coalition said the situation was de-escalated and the patrol returned to the base.
Syrian media said that a Syrian civilian was killed and another was wounded when U.S. troops opened fire on locals who had tried to block a U.S. convoy from driving through a checkpoint in a village in the country's northeast. The state Sana news agency said the locals had gathered at the army checkpoint in the village of Kerbetamu, east of the town of Kamishi, Kamishli, rather, pelting the U.S. convoy with stones and taking down a U.S. flag from one vehicle. At that point, U.S. troops fired with live ammunition and smoke bombs at the residents, the report said. The reported incident marks a rare confrontation involving U.S. and Syria troops in the crowded region where troop Russian troops are also deployed and is sure to further escalate tensions. Furthermore, Israel has made several strikes in Syria over the last few weeks, one of which endangered a commercial airliner flying over Syrian airspace when Israeli missiles were launched into Syria. The Airbus 320, which had been on its descent toward Damascus International Airport, was escorted out of the danger zone and assisted in landing at Maimin Air Base. The spokesman for the Russian Defense Ministry, Igor Konashkinov, was quoted as saying by Russia's TASS news agency, According to the Russian statement, F-16 jets belonging to the IAF shot eight air-to-ground missiles without entering Syrian airspace. Moscow blamed Israel for using the civilian aircraft as a shield against Syrian anti-aircraft systems. The Israeli military air operations using passenger jets for cover or for blocking of retaliatory fire by Syrian missile systems is becoming a typical trait of the Israeli Air Force, Kanashkinkov said. Well, if this was a deliberate tactic used by the IAF, then the Israelis are no better than Hamas, which uses women and children as shields. Moscow has warned Israel for the second time in three days to desist from its rocket and airstrikes over Syria. Uh, Depka Files military sources report Russian forces in Syria are in the throes of a heavy air force operation against Syrian rebel positions in Idlib, the last province still out of the Assad regime's control. The air raids mainly target the strongest rebel group, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, for the purpose of facilitating the Syria army's advance in its critical campaign to recover the province. The Russians were issuing a strong warning to Israel rather, to back off any action that might impede the Syrian push in Idlib and, moreover, if the, if the situation descended into a clash with Syria, to make no mistake about which side Moscow supports, and it isn't Israel. The reason Damascus will fall, according to the prophecies, is because of what you are hearing. Syria is a mess. There are hundreds of small and large militias, all armed by different nations, the U.S., Turkey, Russia, Iran, and these militias also have ties to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and other nations as well.
Syria is literally becoming some kind of scrambled up mess that is worse now than it was in 2012. Now let's switch gears and look at something I don't usually spend a lot of time on. Another kind of battle that is increasing lately, the environmental kind. First up, viruses. A new virus has been found in Brazil that could be the beginning of plagues brought to the earth during the Great Tribulation. Why do I say this? Well, it's got about 90% of its DNA that scientists have never seen before. Could possibly this have been planted on the earth by Yahweh just in time for the coming trouble? A mysterious new Yara virus is of completely unknown origin, according to this article. Found in an artificial lake, Lake Pampula in Belo Horizonte in Brazil, scientists have discovered this brand new virus, it's reported by LiveScience.com, with genes that have never been seen before. A couple of years ago, a scientific group collected water samples from the creeks of Lake Pampula in search of giant viruses, or those with massive genomes, that infect single-celled organisms called amoebas. But when the team went back to the lab and added these samples to amoeba cells to try to catch giant viruses in their attempt to infect the cells, they found a much smaller intruder. When the researchers analyzed the microbes' genome, they found that most of them had never been seen in any other viruses. They searched for the Yara virus's gene structure in thousands of environmental genomic data and found no hint indicating how rare this virus is. Only six out of 74 genes showed some degree of similarity to other known genes. Some of the known genes are also known to be present in giant viruses, but because Yara virus is both small in size and genome, it's not a giant virus. Yet, it infects amoebas like giant viruses do. This is one of the reasons why this new virus is so intriguing, and we claim that it challenges the classification of DNA viruses. What's more, DNA viruses are classified based on the protein that makes up their shell or capsid. The Yara virus's capsid doesn't resemble any previously known protein. It's also unclear when and where this virus originated and evolved. In any case, Yara virus doesn't infect human cells, this report says, and I add, yet. With genetic engineering being what it is and the scientific propensity for evil and harm, some laboratory somewhere will figure out how to use it to call the human population according to the New World Order's directives.
And it comes just as doctors work to battle the emerging coronavirus, which has infected more than 40,000 people worldwide now. The novel coronavirus that originated in Wuhan, China, has swept across the globe, infecting about 31,500 people as of press time, according to this particular report in NationalGeographic.com. They apparently didn't hear the 40,000 people worldwide report. But a persistent question has permeated the public consciousness. Is this new viral terror less or more dangerous than other infectious diseases? So far, the novel coronavirus has far surpassed SARS in terms of known infections, and it has a case fatality ratio of 2%. In effect, the coronavirus is 20 times as deadly as influenza. The new coronavirus that has already killed more people than the 2003 SARS epidemic appears to be sparing one population group, kids. You know, the New World Order's population culling will not include children. You know, they need children to grow up to become the slaves of the future elite. This deliberately released virus is being tested in a non-controlled clinical study, as I said a few weeks ago, to determine death rates among the elderly, the very people who are needed for their life wisdom, but who are deemed useless by the New World Order. Of the more than 43,100 people, this is yet another uh, known number in another report. I guess nobody knows who, how many really are infected, so let's start over. Of the more than 43,100 people it's infected since December 31st, World Health Organization officials say the majority are over 40 years old and it's hitting those with underlying health conditions and the elderly particularly hard. Those over 80 have the highest risk factor. About 80% of the people who died from the virus in China were over the age of 60, and 75% had pre-existing conditions such as heart disease or diabetes. Those are two of the diseases that are now weighing down the world's health system. Cancer is the other one. People with those diseases have to go. The method of the spread of the virus is still a mystery, according to this report in the Extinction Protocol. Over 100 residents have been evacuated from an apartment building in Hong Kong after two people fell ill with the deadly new coronavirus, stoking fears that the 2019 NCOV could be spared or spread rather through pipes. Hong Kong's Center for Health Protection said the two sick people lived on separate floors at Hong Mei House on the Chung Hong Estate in the New Territories area of Hong Kong, according to the New York Times. Residents were removed from the building after an unsealed pipe was found in the bathroom of one of the patients. The unnamed 62-year-old woman lives 10 floors below an occupant who fell ill before her. The death toll may be higher than is being reported, too. Exiled Chinese businessman Guo Wingui 
recently revealed leaks from Wuhan crematoriums. He, his claims are based on the number of bodies their furnaces are burning. The death toll could be as high as 50,000. He also claims to have inside information that there are 1.5 million confirmed coronavirus cases in China. Wing Wei is emphatic that these are not merely quarantined or under observation, but confirmed cases of coronavirus infection. Even though the virus originated in China, one Iraqi political analyst insists that the U.S. is behind the coronavirus. In other plague news, the UN has warned of major shock from the Africa locust outbreak that is spreading in Uganda this week. Uganda scrambled to respond to the arrival of the biggest locust outbreak that parts of East Africa have seen in decades. An emergency government meeting hours after the locusts were spotted inside Uganda on Sunday decided to deploy military forces to help with ground-based pesticide, pesticide rather, spraying, while two planes for aerial spraying will arrive as soon as possible, a statement said. Aerial spraying is considered the only effective control. The swarms of billions of locusts have been destroying crops in Kenya, which hasn't seen such an outbreak in 70 years, as well as Somalia and Ethiopia, which haven't seen this in a quarter century. One especially large swarm in northeastern Kenya measured 60 kilometers long by 40 kilometers wide. Even a small swarm of the insects can consume enough food for 35,000 people in a day. The insecticides have exploited favorable wet conditions after unusually heavy rains, and experts say climate change is expected to bring more of the same. A medium-sized swarm of locusts can eat the same amount, amount of food as the entire population of Kenya, and that swarm in one day can eat the same amount of food as everybody in the tri-state area of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. So not taking action in time, you can see the consequences. UN officials warned that immediate action is needed before more rainfall in the weeks ahead brings fresh vegetation to feed new generations of locusts. If left unchecked, their numbers could grow up to 500 times before drier weather arrives, they say. Wars and plagues, plagues and wars. Every move of the three child beasts of Satan along with the destruction of the earth by man-made and supernatural plagues and other natural disasters, is leading the world toward total destruction, except for one coming event that will save us, redemption by Yeshua the Messiah. Praise His Holy Name. Thank you. 
That's it for this Beastwatch News Update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastwatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.